This is Missing Persons Uncovered, where we uncover the depth and complexities of this global issue. Every year, millions of people go missing worldwide. I'm Caroline Humer, a global child protection expert. And I'm Karen Shalev-Green, a researcher specializing in missing persons at the University of Portsmouth in the UK. Across this series, we hope to raise awareness of this issue, discuss how societies can support vulnerable people better, and give you the insight into how you can protect your community and family. Today, we look at the importance of collaboration and partnerships where they help protect and respond to missing persons instances and explore the resources available to both families and individuals who may be at risk of going missing. Bethan Hodges works for Missing People, a UK national charity helping anyone affected by someone going missing. A lot of people will be affected by missing. You know, you might have friends or family members who are going through it. Their child might be running away. We, we just don't know. So I think it's having conversations. Listening is huge. You know, a lot of what we do is just listen and we can be there for our family members, our friends. Having worked in the homelessness and social care sector before joining Missing People, Bethan has a unique combination of experience and advice with collaboration, which we'll explore over the next half an hour. Caroline started her conversation with Bethan by finding out a little more about Missing People UK. We were established quite a few years ago. Some of the people listening might remember a missing person in 1986 called Susie Lamplew. She was an estate agent who went missing, and that's how our charity was formed. The two ladies that set up the charity were quite good friends with Susie Lamplew's family, so they really experienced what happens during a missing person's investigation and could see that families needed a lot more support. So those were our beginnings, really. I've been working for the charity for about six, seven years. Before I started at the charity, my background is generally in social care. I'd say that's the thread that holds all the previous jobs together. So safeguarding both adults and children and in various areas of social care. I also worked in the homelessness sector, so working in homeless hostels, working in the support capacity in those homeless hostels. And when I worked there, I'd say I reported quite a few people missing because we'd have people that would move into the hostel and then maybe we wouldn't hear from them. We wouldn't see them for a couple of nights. And then obviously we knew that there was maybe some risk associated and we'd report those people missing. So I was familiar with the sort of process of reporting missing, what the police might do. And I saw a job come up with missing people and it was working in Wales on a project called Aftercare, which was a project looking at what happens when someone comes back from being missing and the support that happens when they're back home. So that's how I started. Not really looking at the missing incident, it's sort of looking at the return. So I've always been focused on the return and how important that is. There is the saying, it takes a village to raise a child. And I know in our world, we've sort of said it takes a village to protect a child. There's variations to this as well. And this is so relevant for all of us, not just for children, but for vulnerable adults 
why does it take a village? What is it that makes it so important to have a village to help protect the vulnerable citizens? I can think of a time when we had somebody who went missing. We knew that he was really high risk. He had dementia and he lived in a village, a very small, small village. And I know that we'd looked at who are our partners in that area who can help us with publicity. And because it was a small village, I think we had a library. It was the only place that we could send posters to. So we'd sent a missing persons poster to this library and we got a phone call from the librarian to say that as she was putting the poster up, she found him. He was on the computer. He had just been in the library the whole time, quite happy using the computer. That just shows that If we didn't have those links into the community, if we didn't have that link into that individual village, that gentleman wouldn't have been found. There's a lot of areas where we need to work in. And if we just look through the lens of missing, we miss a lot of other things within that. From my previous experience working in social care and working in this role, if I try to do it alone, I wouldn't get very far. So even starting with the police, you've got all the individual police forces. So that's 40 plus police forces, you've got the British Transport Police, you've got the College of Policing, the National Police Chiefs Council, HMIC who inspect the police forces, you've got the National Crime Agency who have the Missing Persons Unit who oversee the whole of the UK. So that's already quite a long list but within that you've got all the individual roles within the police and that's just looking at the police. You've got the local authority. So we've all got our own local council. And if you think of all the child protection people, all the adult protection people within those individual councils, it's a lot of people. And then even looking then at the third sector, which would be other charities. We work a lot in collaboration with other charities. We look at missing, but there's loads of other associated risks and we need other charities to work with that are specialists in those risks. And then you've got health, NHS, education. There's so, so, so many people that get involved with missing. I'm not sure people would generally be aware of it, but, you know, somebody goes missing in the UK every 90 seconds. And those agencies are constantly working together to keep people safe. I could keep talking about this. It's a very long list. I guess the fourth sector would also be the private sector. You've got the tech companies, the media aspect. And I have to say, we've had a lot of support from private companies. We've had support from, for example, LexisNexis help us a lot. We put out missing persons, publicity on digital billboards. We're often given the opportunity to do that for free by those companies. So they really, really help us and collaborate with us day to day as well. One of missing people's collaborations is relatively unique, as Bethan explains. We have a service called TextSafe. So that's a text message that we can send to the phone of a missing person, so an adult or a child when they're away. That is requested by the police. It comes through as an email to us and that tells us to send the message to the missing person. But it's confidential. So if the missing person texts us back, we don't pass that on to the police. So it's very much a conversation we have with the missing person. So they might text us back or they might phone us back when it goes through to the helpline or over text. We just, we listen a lot. We'll ask what the missing person wants to do. Maybe they're not ready to go back yet. Maybe they're not ready to speak to family. Maybe they're not ready to speak to the police, but they do want to speak to us. So we can just chat through how they're feeling, 
what they might want to do, why they're away, and try and get them some help. But it's very much decided by the missing person. We wouldn't tell them what to do. We wouldn't tell them that they have to speak to their family. They have to speak to the police. But those options are there if they want to do that. So what we sometimes do with TechSafe is if the person has phoned us, we can set up a three-way call. So for example, it might be a child who wants to set up a call with their parent. It might be a missing adult who wants to set up a call with their partner or the police. Anyone who that missing person wants us to put on the end of the line. We might speak to some missing people who just are not quite sure what to do. And what we can do is just pass a message on to a family member to say that they're safe they're in a safe place, but they're just maybe not ready to come back yet. We don't want people to feel like they have to make a decision there and then. Maybe they need a bit of time. Maybe they want to phone back tomorrow, a week from now. We can give people that time to talk to us. And it's about building that trust as well to have conversations because a lot of people who go missing might go missing more than once as well. And we want to be there every time. TextSafe is there once a person's already gone missing. And the police ask for that. But if they are a person that, let's say, they are missing or they have a loved one they would love to get in touch with but don't know how, you have a helpline. But how do you talk? How can they reach you? Our helpline number is 116000. You can phone that number anywhere in Europe and get some sort of missing support. In the UK, with missing support. So a family member or a loved one can phone that number and just talk through how they're feeling. We can give some support and advice, guidance. It really depends on what that person needs at the time. Also, we have some people who maybe they've got a loved one or a relative that they may have tried reporting missing, but maybe the police haven't taken it on as a missing case because maybe they've said the risk isn't high enough. There could be other reasons. But what we have at Missing People is a lost contact tracing service. We can trace loved ones or relatives that are missing. And that's something that our team can do as well. And how can the public minimise the risk of someone going missing? And what partnerships do missing people have to support that? Bethan touches on some areas discussed in previous episodes. There may be people listening who have a loved one who has dementia. They may be at risk, maybe not right now, but maybe in the future there's a feeling that they might be at risk of going missing. There are things you can do now to prevent that risk. So there's something called the Herbert Protocol that's available in a lot of areas in the UK. It's basically information you can fill out now, just as a safeguarding tool, really. It's something that you have that you know you've got there in case you do have to make that call. And it'll be things like description, like you would when you phone the police and reports were missing. It's that physical description. But it's also things about where that missing person might go. For example, if your loved one wants to go to where they used to work or where they used to go to school. You can put those details in that document for the police to know. I think more generally, it's just awareness of missing. I don't think we really talk about missing beyond it being in sort of TV programmes and that kind of thing where it's those very high risk, a kidnapping case or something like that. We don't really generally understand missing or how prevalent it is how much it happens like I said someone goes missing every 90 seconds there are a lot of people who go missing for different reasons we've done some research recently into missing adults and harm 
and three in four adults were harmed whilst they were away, which is incredibly huge amount of adults are harmed when they're away. I think that's part of the conversation that we've had previously with Charlie Hedges, as well as Carlos Skippers from the Dutch police around the investigation and looking at the risk assessments, but also then having the ability for the police to reach out to charity like Missing People UK and others to be able to provide that help and that assistance to the family that is waiting to hear what is happening. And I just wonder what kind of examples of collaboration does exist in that aspect between missing people in the UK and the police to help to make sure that the investigation is complete in a way with all the different entities. The main services that we provide to the police are the text safe service that I spoke about where they request the message. Another way is the family support. So that might be really early on in the investigation, but we also have families that are referred to us when the case has maybe progressed a bit more and we can give support in the short term or long term. So it just takes the police to refer for us. It can be really practical stuff. And it can be emotional. Maybe families need both, but maybe they need one or the other. Maybe they feel like they've got people around them that they can talk to, but they actually just don't understand the investigation. So one thing we do in terms of collaborating with the police is we take a little bit of that work, if you like, off them and we can spend the time with families when maybe during the investigation they don't have the time to really sit down with the family and explain at length. Maybe they can have a short conversation, but what we can do is spend the time And that's why we'd always say to police to make sure the families are supported because we can be that constant throughout the investigation if the investigation is going on a little bit longer. Another form of collaboration is around child exploitation. We've got a service called Safe Call, and that would be specifically for children who are potentially being criminally exploited. And that service is for children who are being criminally exploited, but it's also for their family members. So that's a way that we collaborate as well in the sense that police might refer families to us for that specific service. We have a lot of family members who self-refer. So they would come to us just to talk through how things are for them and their sort of worries and concerns about their children. And then what we can do is collaborate with the agencies we know that can help them. So almost acting as the first port of call, really, and then helping them to get more support. How do you build trust between a family and the police so that the information sharing continues effectively? We work in a trauma-informed way. We know that people may not want to speak to the police and we would never say to someone that they have to. We'd always give it as an option. We'd always make sure that that person knows that we can be on the other end of the phone. So that's one thing we offer is just to stay on the phone whilst they talk to the police to give that sort of extra level of trust if you like. We've always operated with confidentiality, anonymity. When someone phones us, we can't see their phone number. We don't know where they are in the UK. It's a private phone call. We don't know. What I would say is that if we're worried about someone, we let them know that we might need to phone the police, but we work in a really open way. And I know that we've recently done some research and consultation with people of colour about their experiences with the police. And there is a level of distrust about what happens when 
the loved ones are reported missing, the response they might get, etc. And we're really conscious of that as well and are doing work around that with families involved to make sure that we do get to a point where people feel confident that they can report their loved one missing to the police. Obviously, there's just lots of work to be done in that area of trust. And I guess it's linked to other agencies as well where people may have had, like when I say about trauma, bad experiences of working with professionals in general. We're really aware of that. And I think that, as you say, there's other aspects. And one aspect in my mind is the homeless shelters. A lot of times we look at them as, oh, we don't want them in my neighborhood. We don't want them in the area. So how do you see the partnerships role or collaboration role play between the homeless shelters and the charity as well as the police, I guess? I'll start with the two services we have at Missing People that kind of link into homelessness. But we have something called the Safeguarding Briefing Network. So that's another form of collaboration that we do with the homeless sector and the police. So the way that works is that when the police want to do publicity for a missing person, we can do publicity behind the scenes so it doesn't go out to the public. It won't be a poster on a billboard. It will be like a poster that will be sent via email to a homeless shelter so they can print it out, look at it in the staff room, and they'll know if someone using that service is missing. And they can have that conversation in a discreet way and not put that person under any pressure. I think it's really important that people know that they can access support and if they are missing, know how to reconnect if that's what they want. Adults aren't under any obligation to go back and reconnect if they don't want that and if that's not something that they think is the best for them. Another service that we have is called Find Safe. It's basically our missing person system will talk to another system called Chain which is a database of people who are homeless. And what it does is it flags up, basically, if the person's been reported missing, and that lets outreach workers know that they can have a conversation with that person about being missing. And I know that we got some data back through that, and it has led to missing people being found, or at least speaking to the police and having that conversation. Because a lot of people may have been reported missing and not even know that they've been reported missing. Maybe they were reported by a missing service and then they went to move to another homeless service. So it might be actually news to them that they're a missing person, the police are looking for them. And it can be quite a quick resolution to say, the police want to see you for a quick chat, just to know that you are safe and that you're actually in a homeless hostel and receiving support. And what about collaboration with hospitals and care homes? In 2018, we did an all-parliamentary inquiry into missing and mental health. So that involved a lot of collaboration with NHS, social care, the inspectorate, so CQC, who inspect hospitals and care settings. So we basically all sat around a table and looked at the current policies and procedures we had and how could we make them more universal? How can we make sure that no one falls through the gaps in terms of going missing and not being supported? So that was published, and I'd say that has made some difference in terms of health and the police and other agencies collaborating on missing and looking at how do things work on a local level when somebody goes missing? What happens first? Who's responsible? What staff members should be doing? And I think that's helped a lot. It feels like there's more collaboration around 
sort of hospitals and care settings. What collaboration isn't there yet that you need? I think it's having conversations, like having conversations about missing. What does it mean? You know, what's the difference between running away and going missing? What happens when somebody goes missing? Earlier when we said how prevalent it is, that 90 seconds, that means a lot of people will be affected by missing. You might have friends or family members who are going through it. Their child might be running away. We just don't know. So I think it's having conversations. Listening is huge. You know, a lot of what we do is just listen. And we can be there for our family members, our friends. We know that a huge, huge factor in people going missing is mental health. People get to a point where running away or going missing feels like the only option because being at home is unbearable. Living in their life is unbearable. Is there any way that we could be talking about that and people can trust us to have those conversations? In terms of supporting the charity we always need people to share appeals. We always need just general awareness as well. People in the communities, letting other people know about what we do. Like I said, if you've got someone with dementia, letting them know that the Herbert Protocol exists and that can prevent a person from going missing. That's something that you can do right now if someone in your family has dementia. So there are a lot of things that people can do. I want people to feel like they are part of that collaboration. Like we really rely on the public to help us day to day. And once a person is found for missing people, that's where a lot of the work actually starts, initially with the return home interview. It's referred to in different ways around the UK. So you hear return home interview, return discussion, return chat, because interview feels quite formal. We don't want it to feel formal. So it's basically a conversation with that missing person when they come back. Legally, children need to have it in England. In other areas, it's not a statutory requirement, but it's best practice if you like to do it. It's a conversation with that person about what happened when they were away. And we know that it can sometimes be the one and only kind of chance that person will have to talk about what's going on in their life, what's difficult, what's, you know, maybe causing them to feel like they need to go missing. So the way that it works is that we would receive a referral from the police. So often there's a form that they fill out when somebody comes back from being missing. And that would have a small level of detail in it about why they went away. And we would receive that. And that would form the basis of that conversation. We would make it really clear to the missing person what we know. And just take it from there and have a conversation with them. We might have that conversation with a young person once, or we might see them week after week if they've been reported missing more than once. But we know those conversations are really, really important, especially if you've been missing a few times. If you go missing and you come home and no one asks you why, that's so bizarre for nobody to wonder where you went or what happened or how you were feeling. And we have a lot of particularly adults that don't get asked at all. They might have had a quick conversation with the police and then no support, no further conversation, no questions asked. And I think a lot of people, when we say, you know, maybe they've disclosed something much later on, how come you didn't mention it at the time? Which is very blaming. I would never phrase it this way to somebody, but they'll often say, you know, nobody asked you don't get asked when you come home. You're not going to trust someone if they're not interested in what happened when you were away. So it's really, really, really important. Like, I can't stress enough how important it is to have that conversation. What's the biggest challenge in trying to collaborate 
with so many entities that you've mentioned throughout this episode, what's the biggest challenge for Missing People Charity to be able to do the work that you're doing? I think it's just awareness, awareness of the charity, awareness of what we do and how we can help. Because we are here to help. That's our role is to help other agencies with missing. We're here to help missing people themselves. We're here to help families. So it's just, do those agencies know about us and do the public know about us? You're only going to know about missing people, the charity, if your loved one goes missing. But we want people to know that we're here and that we can support them. We've got Runaway Helpline as well. It's the same service. When we talk about people listening and how they might be able to help or get involved, it's very much like, I I do this job day to day. I definitely need your help. (laughs) I would love loads of people to help me with this. I'd love people to collaborate with me to get the word out there about what we do and how we work with other agencies. If you are on social media, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, those kind of accounts and retweet and share appeals if you can. And look out in your community, you know, are you seeing our posters? Are you seeing sort of leaflets for us? Because that's something we can put leaflets in GP offices. We can put posters up, signposting people to the helpline. And it's that awareness that we're out there and that we can help. I really want to thank you for spending the time with us and having this conversation because the partnership is never ending because there's more and more partnerships that need to happen and that we are a village in a global space to be able to work this. And so I really appreciate you sharing this information with us and being with us today And I'm sure we'll talk more about the different services of missing people and hopefully have you back as well in the future. Oh, thank you, Caroline. It's lovely to speak to you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Missing Persons Uncovered. Next time, we'll be joined by John Bishop to discuss publicity appeals. If you'd like to find out more about our work or any resources we mention in the show, or about our guests, please go to missingpersonsuncovered.com. But if you'd like specific information or need help, please reach out to your local police department or national charity. I'm Caroline Humer. And I'm Karen Shalev-Green. Thanks for listening to Missing Persons Uncovered. We'll speak again next time. This episode was brought to you by the University of Portsmouth. You can find out more about how their research is changing our world for the better and supporting projects like this at port.ac.uk research.